This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. I'll open up to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. It's great to come to church and learn things. Uh, Brian, thank you for what you shared. I didn't know we had 10 alternates, and I'm wondering what's on the line right now. And do I get air conditioning in my office? Do I get, do I get carpet? Do I get, am I just outside? I, I don't know. What, what is going on? Just outside in a tent. So I don't know what those things are, but uh, evidently there's some things that are being, uh, that are being uh, questioned at uh, this point. Just don't make us do baptisms in that little kitty blow-up pool, okay? That's all I'm asking. That cannot be one of the alternates uh, for sure. Uh, for the sake of those being baptized. But, uh, well, here's what we're going to do. We are in a uh, kind of a two or three week here mini series uh, called Prepare for the Square, where we are uh, preparing for uh, November the 1st when we will do our annual, we've done this every year for a number of years if you're new, our annual pledges uh, towards what we plan, each uh, person plans to give over the next year um, above our regular giving to help uh, fund the. Um, the construction project and, and uh, fund that. So we'll be doing that on November 1st. Now, here's the thing. I'm going to actually do a message today that's the very next passage in First Peter, and then I'm going to make some application at the end that I think would be relevant to this topic. But I think this passage in First Peter that we're just on providentially, where we are, where we've landed, I think it is uh, going to be helpful and is going to address uh, what I want to say uh, today about, uh, uh, about moving forward. So let's read First Peter 2. Uh, I'm going to go verses 1 through 10. We completed First Peter 1 last week, or two weeks ago. Now we're in First Peter 2, verses 1 through 10. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and what this tells us about you and what it tells us about us, the church. And I pray that as we look at this today, Lord, that you would expand our vision. I pray for every Christian in the room that you would give us a much bigger vision of what you seek to accomplish through your people 
and what you seek to accomplish through us as we gather for your worship. And I pray for anyone here who doesn't know you. I pray that the words of this passage, the words of this text in 1 Peter would grip their hearts and that you would reveal yourself to them and grant the glorious gift of faith that they might turn from sin and believe in you. Grant new life to those uh, who have yet to experience it tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, if you are new to the Bible, I'm really glad that you are here. And as I read that, you may be going, there is a lot of religious terminology and I have no idea what that's talking about. Okay, let me let you in on a secret. Every Christian in this room read this and go, there's a lot of religious terminology that I don't know anything. There's not a person in this room that read those 10 verses and can tell you what every word means and can give you the context of how it fits in the Old Testament. So if you don't really understand this, welcome. We're all learning together. And this, 1 Peter, is just dense. It's got a lot of dense theological terms, and this one does. So I'm going to walk us through this and explain it all as best I can, as best as I am understand it and explain it all to us. So I just wanted to give you a a bit of a, uh, uh, you know, this is, we're called Grace Church. And grace means that we shouldn't be judging others for what they know or don't know. We should all be looking to God and say, we don't know anything. And anything we do know compared to him, anything we do know is because he opened our eyes and taught it to us. Nobody can boast in what they know. We can only boast in the one we know and that he has opened our eyes. So if you're new feel right at home. We are, we are all learning together. I want to make that clear. I want to tell you a story, which I've actually told before, but some of you are new and many of us are getting old. And so the congregation, so I can tell stories and like, there's a lot of people go, wow, that was great. I said, I've told that three times, but they don't know. So, uh, anyway, when I lived, uh, my wife, my kids, we lived in Southern California. Actually, we didn't have all our kids at this point, but, um, We lived in Pasadena, California, and there was a time in Southern California when I was actually uh, a chaplain for a public high school football team, public high school, which in Southern California, if you know anything about that, that is absolutely unheard of. If that had become public, somebody's head could have rolled because what they did was they invited me into the locker room uh, to South Pasadena High School and every Friday night before the games, guys all get together and I would pray for them. The, the, the coaches asked me just to pray because you've heard that saying there's no atheist in a foxhole. There's no atheist in a football locker room. They will, any, oh yeah, sure, pray, whatever. For many of them is a good luck charm, but whatever, yeah, do whatever you want. They actually invited me into what they called, quote, Hell Week, which was uh, the two-a-day practices in August, and invited me between the morning and the evening practice just to preach the gospel to the whole team. Unbelievable. I had this opportunity. So anyway, I did this for one season. I didn't get asked back, so, uh, but I did it for one season, and I never got back to Hades Week or whatever, the whole thing. I didn't get to do any of it. But uh, that one season, I just have this vivid memory. Many years ago, but I have vivid memory of this kid. He was a running back. I don't remember his name, but I can see him in my mind's eye. And here's what he would do. He would play, he played offense, obviously. So he'd do a play. They'd run through a set of downs. They weren't great. So there was a lot of three downs and then out. And he would come to the side, sideline. And when he would come to the sideline, he would find me. I stood, I stood there. I don't know, in case somebody got injured, I pray, or I, I don't know what I was there for. But I was just sort of there. Uh, and uh, so, but this kid would run to the side to me and he would just come over to me and he would say, Hey, can you pray for me? Can you pray for me? Just pray for me. So I would, you know, okay, I would pray for him and probably didn't pray the things he wanted, but I would pray for him. And 
Uh, then he would go back in, another set of downs, and he'd come out and regularly, we pray for me, we pray for me. So while, uh, <clears throat> while the defense is on the field, he's asking for prayer. In and out, all season long, this guy did it. And I got to know him, and it was a, you know, it was a good experience to get to pray for this guy. But nobody else was doing that. And here was kind of his mindset. I'm sure it was superstitious. But his mindset was that, you know, I'll do better in the game if I'm getting some prayer, kind of some refueling, some, some power over here on the sideline, and then I can get back into the game and play. And it occurred to me that really his attitude is not far from the attitude many of us can bring into the Sunday gathering, to our Sunday worship gathering uh, when we get together. See, just as sideline prayer empowered him for the real mission, which was on the field. Uh, so the worship gathering, we think, sometimes refuels us for the real mission. This is not the mission, we think. The real mission's out there. And so we come in and we gather and we get refueled so that we can go back into the world. We can come in among the church and get blessed, fed, filled, so that we can go out into the world and give where the mission is. We gather with believers to be strengthened, and then we go back into the world to our various vocations to be a witness among unbelievers. And it's very much the same mindset of this kid. I come in and get refueled and charged, and then I go into the real game the mission. And while that mindset is not totally false, there's something to be said for that mindset. It's imbalanced. It's an imbalanced mindset. The truth is, and this passage makes it clear, that we don't just gather for edification and then scatter for mission. We don't gather just to be built up and then go out to proclaim the gospel. This is mission as well. The mission in the New Testament is not just go and tell. It is also come and see. And if someone will come and see, they will see something that you never individually can portray for them. You can't portray what's just happened the last 40 minutes for them. You can't portray what's happening right now for them. You can't portray what's going to happen afterwards because what's happening here is diverse people from different backgrounds, different lifestyles, all kinds of stuff, are gathering around the gospel and the people of God or worshiping God and hearing from God from his word. And so it's not just go and tell, though that is certainly primary in terms of the time we invest in our lives. Uh, it is also come and see. God's intent is that outsiders be exposed to him through his people. God wants to display himself through his people. God wants outsiders to see what he's like by encountering his people and particularly encountering him through his people's worship. Peter writes to people in this letter that are on the margins of society. They are rejected. They're on the outside. They're being persecuted to some degree. They are being resisted by their culture. They are aliens. They are exiles, he says. And, And he tells them, these people who are struggling along, that I want to display myself through you, which is amazing. He tells struggling, weak people that he wants to display himself through them. And so what he does in this passage is he begins to tell the people in the church, this kind of battered folks, these kind of folks that are being opposed by society, that are uncool, that are rejected, that are viewed as misfits, foreigners, aliens, strangers. That's what this book is about. He's saying to them, I'm going to display myself through you. 
And so he speaks to them about who they are. He wants them to know who they are in Christ. And then he talks about what they do together, who they are and what they do when they gather. So he starts off in verses one through three. Here he's uh, this kind of tags with what happened in the se- uh, section before. But here he's kind of talking about you're to live different than the world. So you, the people of God aren't to have malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Okay? Because that doesn't represent Jesus. That's what the world is like. So he's saying you're to live distinctly from the world. You're to grow up uh, feeding on the scripture and have a different life. Uh, Not to be someone with malice, but someone with love. Not to someone who's deceitful, but someone who tells the truth. Not to someone who's hypocrite, but someone who's genuine. Not someone who's envious, but someone who gives freely of themselves to others. Not someone who slanders, but someone who speaks words of encouragement, truth, life, those kinds of things. So that's what they're to be. And then in verse four, he begins to talk to them about who they are. This is amazing imagery. Verse four, as you come to him, that's Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. So this is what he says. Jesus is like a rock, a stone. It's a metaphor. Jesus is like a stone. But he's not just a big chunk of rock. He's living because he's been resurrected. He's a living stone. So Jesus is this living stone. And you, church, you battered Christian, you rejected person, uh, you person who's not culturally necessarily with the times because you believe in Jesus and the rest of Asia Minor at this point in the Roman Empire does not believe in Jesus. So you're kind of strange, but you, you are a stone as well. You are living stones. You come to him, Jesus, the living stone. You come to him. This is worship language. You approach. You come, all of you, the you is plural. You together come to Jesus, the living stone, in the sight of God, chosen and precious, and you are like living stones being built into a spiritual house. So he's saying, you come together, probably in view here would be a worship gathering for them. Where else are they all coming together? You come to him You come to him together. He's a big living stone and you are a living stone that's being built on him and connected. And God is building a spiritual house. Now he says in here that Jesus was chosen in the sight of men. He was rejected, but according to God, he was chosen. So he's saying, you're just like Jesus. God chose you, even though society or some people in your family or your neighbor that doesn't like you, whomever rejects you perhaps for your faith, but that's just like Jesus. And so you're being built to him. And here's what's going on. You're not just a part of a club. You're not just attending a meeting. You don't just have to go to the worship service. You're being built. You're a project. God is building a temple, a spiritual house. It's life-giving. It's full of life. It's where the presence of God is. And you're these stones that are being built on the big stone. Wow, that, that changes what they may have thought about what they were doing together. That speaks of unity. He doesn't say you're a bunch of rocks. It's like I saw this big field and there was rocks all over the place. No, unity. Stones connected together. It speaks of dignity. Dignity. Giving yourself to the most important thing happening on the planet. God's plan of building a house. It it speaks uh, not only of unity and of dignity, it speaks of purpose significance. 
hey, Christians in Asia Minor, Christians here tonight, you're not just wasting, frittering your life away, just filling some, some uh, time on your calendar. You're doing something that really matters when you're connected to God's people. It's a spiritual house that's living. The picture is like the temple in the Old Testament. You are the temple, is what he's saying. You are God's temple. Then he shifts, and he begins to talk about uh, uh, the, that they are priests. He goes on to say, uh, you are a, verse 5, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Now, what does this mean? I mean, this is crazy. Some They're all priests at God's temple. Not only are you the temple, but you're the priest. Well, priests offered sacrifices. There's no more sacrifices because Jesus is the sacrifice. He died for our sins. But he says you're offering spiritual sacrifices. What is that? Well, probably in the broadest terms, a spiritual sacrifice is offering our, Lord, our life to Christ. Like Romans 12, we're living sacrifices. It's offering our life to Christ. But did you know in the Bible, it also speaks specifically about sacrifices that are praise to God. So he's saying, you come to the Lord. That's what he says. You come together, your stone's being built together, and you're offering a sacrifice. What is that sacrifice when we get together? Well, it's probably all of life, but it's probably also specifically what we read like in Hebrews 13. In Hebrews 13, the scripture says, through him... Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Through him, let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Okay, so he's saying that you're gathering and the praise that you bring is a sacrifice to God. Your priest, your, your bricks in the temple as well. You're connected to him. And he goes on to say, not only that, but you are, this is amazing, you are honored. It's an honor to do what you do. There's an honor that comes with it, is what he says. They were misfits, perhaps, in culture. They were perhaps rejected by their neighbors. But before the Lord, they're honored. Uh, look at verse 7. So the honor is for you who believe. The honor is for you who believe. Those who believe There is an honor that comes with that. Those who reject Christ, uh, well, they stumble, he says. Verse 6 says, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Whoever believes will not be put to shame. So this is from Isaiah 28. So again, a cornerstone, we may not be familiar with that, but a cornerstone was a stone that would go on the corner of a building, hence the name cornerstone, and it would be a foundation. So you would have a stone that might be like this at the corner of a building, and then you would put bricks, living stones in our illustration, on top of it. That cornerstone would bear a lot of weight, and that cornerstone would set the walls. It would set the angles. It would line out the direction of the building. And so Jesus is the cornerstone. He bears the weight. He sets the angles. He, he, he lines everything up. Everything is, drawn, is built upon him, and everybody d- is directed from him. That's the picture. And it says, if you're built on him, you believe. And if you believe, you will never be put to shame. A great word for struggling Christians who may have been mocked. You may be shamed by someone. God will never shame you as a believer. There is no shame. You're not going to be shamed. You're loved. As a matter of fact, it's an honor. So the honor is for you who believe. You may be dishonored by your culture. God honors faith in Jesus. And so he's giving these very encouraging terms to them, but he's also saying it's all built around being a building together. He just continues to use that metaphor. 
And uh, he says, those who don't believe, verse 8, Jesus is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So if you're building on the cornerstone, you'll never be shamed. It's a joy. It's an honor. If you're not, if you reject the cornerstone, see, the builders rejected the cornerstone and built something else. But he said what they rejected was Jesus. And so he says, for some people, Jesus, they stumble over him or they, he's not a beautiful cornerstone. He's an offensive rock. So what's he saying there? Well, many reject Jesus. Many are offended by him. Many people will not love to hear that Jesus says, follow me alone. Many people in a society which, whose chief value is tolerance a multicultural, multi-religious society for anyone to say there is one way for eternal life. There is one way to know God. There is one way to go to heaven. There is one way to have your sins forgiven. And that is through one person, the God-man, Jesus Christ. That is a rock of offense. That is a stone of stumbling. And so our world's just like theirs. They lived in a polytheistic world with multiple gods, and you had to worship the emperor. I've seen both parties' debates. I'm glad we don't have to worship any emperors in our nation because I hadn't seen anybody that was uh, worship-worthy yet. That's only Jesus, right? So they worshiped their emperor, um, among others. So Jesus saying, no, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar is Lord, Jesus is Lord, that would be very offensive in the Roman Empire. Just it's the same world that we live in. So he's saying your true identity is exactly the opposite of what your culture says about you. They rejected Jesus, they'll reject you. But all of this is about them building together as they gather before the Lord. Then look what he says next, verse 9. He gives them other statements about who they are. You are a chosen race. He's using language from the Old Testament. I don't have time to develop this out. Uh, Maybe I will in another time because I want to. Um, he's He's saying, how does the church relate to Israel? He's using the exact same language to describe Israel And he is now describing the church that way. The church doesn't replace Israel, but the church is the fulfillment of Israel. The Bible teaches that all of Israel was not really Israel, is what Paul teaches in Romans. Only those who really believed, and when Christ came, only those who believed in Christ were true Israel. And so God's people are those who believe in Jesus. And so now Gentiles have been brought into God's people. Gentiles have been, the picture of the Bible is, grafted on, a branch that's grafted on to the people of God. And so he will use the same language for the church that he uses for the Israel, because this is the people of God he's describing. The church, Jew and Gentile, whoever believes in Jesus, the church is a chosen race a chosen race. They are elect exiles. They are a chosen race. They've been chosen by God. He's opened their eyes. He's given them new life. And now they're part of a new race. The one race, Jew and Gentile, black, brown, white, multiple languages, whatever. It's one race in Jesus. Anyone who believes in Christ is part of God's chosen race of people. This is the answer to racism. The answer to racism uh, is hearts that have been joined together in Christ. Where we should see a display of the unity of all people, all kinds of people, where that display should be the loudest in our culture is in the church. The church, and I pray for that for us. I pray for every type of diversity that the Lord would bring. Age, diversity. 
We don't want to be a young church. We don't want to be an old church. We want to be an everybody church. Uh, racial diversity, socioeconomic diversity, single, married. Uh, we, we want a variety of people because that represents the one race nature of the church. So you're a holy, uh, you are a chosen race is what he says, chosen by God. Next, they are a royal priesthood. It's hard for us to imagine how radical this is, that he's saying Gentiles are priests. Whoa! Impossible! In the Old Testament, only a very small group of people were priests. They were set apart. They had access to God that no one else did. They sacrificed so that, on behalf of people so that they could encounter God and have their sins forgiven. The priest was a very unusual, special class of religious leaders that served Israel. And he's saying, you're all priests! You're a priest, you're a priest, you're all priests, if you believe in Jesus. Amazing is what he's saying to them. You have access to God, is what he is communicating to them, and he is your king. It's a royal priesthood. You are priests before the king. He's already told us that up in verse 4 and 5, didn't he? You're offering spiritual sacrifices. Next, he says, you are a holy nation. You are a holy nation. Here is the biblical view of a holy nation. It is not a... Uh, it doesn't have geographic borders. It's not, oh, I knew America was in the Bible somewhere. There it is. Oh, I hate to disappoint. No. He's not talking about America as a holy nation. He's not talking about one uh, people with geographic borders. He's talking about everybody who's in Christ, everybody who's believed with different tribes, race, language, tongue, different. And he's saying you are a piece. So he's not talking about a country or a geographic boundary. He's using the word nation, meaning a people. We actually use it that way. Like we're all Cowboys fans here, right? So we would say we're Cowboys nation. You ever heard that term? Cowboys nation. Didn't get a boo at all. That's great. Okay. So you heard it. You consented. Okay. So that's who we are. What does that mean? That means that's the people who cheer uh, for the Cowboys. That's Cowboys Nation, the people that are, that are fans of that club. So the holy nation is the people set apart in relationship with Christ. So you're a holy nation. Again, this is all language that was used of Israel. This is all from Exodus 19. This holy nation, the royal priesthood, the people for his possession, this all comes out of the Old Testament. And he says, that's who you are. You've been separated by Christ. So again, what, what ennobling language, what get your chin up kind of a language. You're not just bumbling along with no purpose in your life. Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. I'm just an outsider. And no, he's saying that may be the way the world views you, but you're chosen by God. That should do something in our souls. You're a priest. You have access to God. I mean, just a few years ago when he wrote this, just a few years ago, that was a very small group of people. Now that's you. You have ongoing access to the Father through Jesus, is what he says to them. You're a holy nation. You're set. You're the people that are set apart where God's going to display himself. You are the focus of what God is doing on the earth. The church is central. The world is peripheral. The culture is peripheral. The church is central to what God's doing. That's what he's telling them. You're not a ragtag bunch just off to the side, making no difference in the world. No, you are the representation of God. God's people is what he is telling them. And it's all corporate. These pictures of his people being together. You're a people for his possession, it says. 
We, we think very individually here in America. I am God's. I am God's child. That's true. That's true. But the Bible almost always speaks of us in corporate terms. You're a child, yes, but you've got brothers and sisters that you're connected to and a father. You're part of a family. You're part of a household. You're part of a spiritual building. You wouldn't say, okay, we got a stone out here all on its own. I'm a stone of God. No, you're a living stone in the building, in the house that he's building together. It's all corporate. The New Testament knows nothing about an individual believer just isolated on their own. You, you don't even get a hint of that in the Bible, except where it's corrected in Hebrews. It says, don't neglect the gathering together of yourselves, as some are in the habit of doing, is what he says. You don't even get that. There's no one in the Bible who says, well, I just listen to podcasts, but I'm not really associated with the church. The writers of the Bible, the people go, what are you talking about? I don't get that. You're a holy nation. You're a people. It's all together, stones, one on another. Every image is about them, and it has to do with being built together, and particularly uh, as we come to the Lord. Now, that's coming next, still talking about who we are. So we are not watching a performance. We are not attending a program. We are not a club. We are not a social gathering. We are God's people gathering with him. And I don't mean just, if you're new here, I don't mean just Grace Church. I mean every church all over the world throughout history that preaches the Bible and believes that Jesus is Lord and our Savior. Anybody who teaches the Scripture and believes that Jesus is the way to salvation, they are uh, this part of this bigger picture that we're reading about. He's present. He's acting among us. He is building us as living stones together for his worship. We are built together so that he can display himself. God's plan throughout the Old Testament is I will display myself to the nations through my chosen people. Abraham, I'm going to make a nation of you. And through you, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. Israel is always to display the glory of God. Sometimes they did it well. Some, many times they did it very poorly. But they are, God owns them so that he can show everybody what he's like. He brings them through the Red Sea so everybody will know that Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, is glorious and powerful. And that's what God's doing through us. He's displaying himself through his people. There's a story of a, a Spartan king. That is a king of Sparta, the city of Sparta. And he had another king visiting him. And as the king was visiting him, the visiting king, the Spartan king began to brag, as kings are known to do, began to brag about his walled city, began to brag about the great walls of Sparta, which protected him and his city from any enemy invasion. And so they walked out, and the visiting king began to just survey and look around at the city. And uh, he looked around, and he didn't see anything, didn't see a single wall. It's just open wherever he went. And so he asked the Spartan king, you know, where are these uh, famous walls of Sparta, this Spartan wall that surrounds your city that you speak of? And the Spartan king pointed to his army, and he said, that is the wall of Sparta. Every man a brick. Every man a brick. That's our walls. Powerful story of how he 
put his security and trust in his army to defend him. And I think that that is exactly what God is getting at here. If someone were to say, where, where can I see Jesus today? I don't believe in Jesus. I, I can't see Jesus. If I can't see Jesus, how do I know he's even real? I think the answer is Jesus is in his temple. And if someone were to say, well, I'd like to know where that is. Where is the temple? We would point to the gathered church and say, every person a stone. Every person a living stone. You want to see what God is like? You read his word. That's the revelation of God. And you see his work through his people. Every person a stone. Built upon one another. Connected. Joined. The holy nation. The royal priesthood. The people for his glory that he possesses. People that are demonstrating together what no one can demonstrate on their own. Personal witness is vital. Faithfulness in our neighborhood and on our workplace as an individual, that's vital. Faithfulness as a Christian in your school, very important. But they all have limitations. Because I can't by myself display the glory of God among his, as his people. That is corporate. So that's who we are in this passage. What do we do? Well, here's what they do, he says. The people for his own possession, verse 9 that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, that you may declare his excellency, that you may proclaim his excellency. So what this, this people does is they are not just joined together, but they proclaim something. They declare something. Now, here is what is so interesting about this word. It is not a word that means preaching. It does not mean that you may preach the excellencies of him who called you. The, the, the word preaching is up in verse 25 of chapter 1. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. It's not that word. As a matter of fact, this word, which my version, the ESV says proclaim, the, the NIV says declare, it doesn't appear anywhere in the New Testament except right here. So how do you know what it means? Well, you can look at uh, how it shows up in the Old Testament. Because in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this word is used a lot. And it is used frequently in the Psalms. It is a word that has to do with worship. And it means declare. So that's why the NIV translates, what does the church do? They declare um, the praises of God. That's what the NIV says. They declare the praises of God. Um, so in Psalm 79, for instance, it says one generation, uh, from one generation to generation, we will recount your praise. It's the same word. There it is not declare, not proclaim, but it's recount. Or in Psalm 107, it says, we'll tell of his deeds in songs of joy, tell of his deeds. It's the same word. So what he's saying is he's picking a word from the Psalter, from the Psalms. Peter's picking a word from the Psalms that has to do with declaring the praises of God. It could include preaching. But it has to do with singing, declaring, telling the praise of God. So he says, you are this corporate group. You're going to come together as living stones. You're going to tell the praises of God. You're going to declare them. You're going to talk about what he's like and, who he's do- and what he's done. That's the book of Psalms. And that's what he calls us to do. So God uh, has formed a people to declare in word and song what he has done. And what has he has done? He's called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So when we gather, we proclaim what he's done to him. We proclaim what he's done to one another. And we proclaim what he's done before those who don't know him. 
We proclaim what he's done before those who are in darkness. Uh, the, the, just looking at some of this in the Old Testament, I think we have a skewed view. We, our, our view typically is that uh, praise and evangelism are different. That praise is speaking to God and evangelism is speaking to others about God. But in the Old Testament, there are numbers of places in the Psalms where God is praised and in the midst of the praise, the nations are called to join. The nations or the peoples always means pagans. It's the unbelievers. It's the Gentiles. It's those who aren't in the covenant community. God's view was always that Israel would worship, and as they're going vertical towards God, that that message, would, what they're singing of God, would affect those who hear, who look on, who listen. That is God's plan. So, for instance, Psalm 96. Psalm 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous work among all the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. That's all the people. All the lost are called. He's he's singing, all lost people worship God. The assumption is that some are hearing that at some point. Worship the, uh, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Or here's another one, Psalm 105. Psalm 105. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wonderful works. Now, we make known his deeds over coffee when we share what God's doing in our life with a lost person, when we have someone over for dinner and tell them our testimony. When we, we tell people all the time or can tell people all the time, but here it's corporate worship. Give thanks, call upon his name, make his deeds known among the people. Tell the people what he's done. Sing to him. He's talking about singing and people listening on. This is what Tim Keller said about this. Tim Keller's a pastor in New York City. He said, Israel was called to make known, make God known to unbelieving nations by singing his praises. Did you know that? Israel was called to make God known to unbelieving nations by singing his praises. The temple to be was to, to be the center of world-winning worship. The people of God not only worship before the Lord, but also before the nations. God is to be praised before all nations, and he is to be praised by his people. The nations are summoned and called to join in the song. This pattern does not essentially change in the New Testament, where Peter tells a Gentile church, this verse we're at, to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness. The term cannot merely refer to preaching, but must also refer to gathered worship. That's what the court of the Gentiles, you remember that? Have you ever heard of that? The court of the Gentiles in Jesus' day. What was the court of the Gentiles for at the temple? It's not just because Gentile, it's not just the place that Gentile believers gather. How did you find out what was going on? It was a place where a Gentile inquirer who wanted to know of God would gather and hear the praises of God. Observe something, they couldn't observe everything, but observe something of the worship of God as an inquirer. This is the anticipation in 1 Corinthians when Peter, I mean, when Paul is talking about using spiritual gifts in the church. And he gives an illustration where he says, if the gift of prophecy is used appropriately in your gathering, then unbelievers, guests, onlookers who come in will say, surely God is in this place. When you gather and spiritual gifts are used 
biblically and appropriately, it will not just build up the Christian church. Unbelievers who Paul assumes and anticipates are there, even kids who have yet not been converted. So there's always lost people. Every time we gather, there's people that don't know the Lord. A certain percentage. I don't know what the percentage is here. But there's always people that don't know the Lord. Surely God is in this place. That is the goal. So listen to what he's saying to these Gentiles. A beaten down church who feel marginalized and are, who feel resisted, who feel rejected. He's saying, you're my chosen people. And you are the ones that I'm calling to declare my praise, to announce my works to the surrounding community, to me, to one another, for sure. But also you are to represent me to the surrounding community. The whole book of First Peter is how does the church relate with the culture? How does the church relate to the world? How does the church relate to the world? Next, in the next passage, we're going to see how, is, how are we to relate to unbelieving civil authority. For them, the Roman Empire. For us, the U.S. government. How do you relate, or, or other under-authorities that we have, state government, local government, your authority, your boss at work, how do we relate to authorities that are not Christian? It's going to answer that. How does a wife relate to an unbelieving husband? She's a Christian. He's not. It's going to answer that. How do we relate when we suffer for our faith? He's going to talk about that. What do we do when people resist us? He's going to talk about that. And here, what is the church supposed to be like? We're to be displaying the glory of God because there are people watching and there will be people watching and God desires to announce his good news and display his work for an unbelieving world through the church. The gospel witness is amplified when the people of God gather in the presence of God to proclaim the excellencies of God. Our, our, our witness is amplified. One-on-one, I can share my life with somebody. But it is amplified. It's plugged in. It can't, in the right context, it can be turned up to 10 or 11 or whatever. It can be turned up and cranked. The witness can be cranked when the people of God gather in the presence of God to sing and declare and testify and preach the, the purpose of God, the glory of God, the gospel of Christ. And we're built up and so is the world. The mission is not just go into the world. It is also, verse 4, as you come to him, verse 10, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once we were not a people, but now we're the people of God. We've been touched by mercy, he says. God's had mercy on us. So how do we respond to that? Well, we believe this is true. That's the big response, is we believe that this is true. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You are proclaiming, singing, telling the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous life. Do I believe that? And do my, am I gripped by that? Not, I give a head nod to that. That's nice. Am I gripped that I was headed for hell, isolated on my own, and God had mercy on me, and he made me part of his people, and that's the greatest privilege I have in life is to know him and to be among his people. Do I live with the privilege, the joy, the I can't believe this factor? Because a church that lives in that, you can't keep them apart. You can't keep the people of God apart 
if they believe these truths, that we have experienced his mercy, that we weren't a people, but now we are a people. I mean, when I'm with God's people, would any, here's, here's a test to do. Here's, here's an application test for our hearts. Let's just take this. When I gather to sing with God's people, to hear God's word through the preached scripture, to fellowship with his people. So here's the test. When I get together, when I come to worship, when I come to be a part of God's people, um, and an unbeliever or an, unsure, an unbelieving kid, an unbelieving adult, an unbelieving guest, if someone observed me in response to the family of God, would they draw the conclusion that I'm announcing, I'm declaring that I was in darkness, but now I'm in light? And I'm announcing the excellencies of God. I once was not a part of the people of God, but now I am because he showed me mercy. I'm overwhelmed by that. And I can't stop talking about that. And I can't stop singing about that. And I reserve my highest affections of the week for the time when I can gather with God's people and proclaim how great he is such that if someone were to come from the outside, which they do every week, if someone were to come from the outside who does not know Christ and they observed this display, they would say, I don't know if I believe in that guy's Jesus, but he does. I may not, but he does. And I am provoked to investigate something's going on here. Some people will say they're nuts. Their Jesus is not even real. And Jesus then is a stone of offense and a stumbling block. But some people will say, I see the display of God through his people. I hear the word of God through the scripture. And I'm convinced that something that he is true because of his word and because I can see his work on display. I see a chosen people, a royal priesthood. I see something glorious. I hear an announcement of his excellencies. And it's compelling. It's compelling. So we believe this. It'll, it affects us. It affects how we re- relate to God and his people. Lastly, and I am completely out of time for this, but... Um, I think, this, I think this relates tremendously to what we're trying to do uh, in preparing to go to Frisco Square. Because I think what the Lord has done for us by giving us that location, giving us that location, um, we've just been responding to him is all we're doing. It wasn't part of a five-year plan, ten-year plan. It was just something the Lord gave to us. But my heart is that as many people as possible would be exposed to the presence of God among the people of God and would hear the gospel message. That, that's what it's all about. I made a joke earlier. I don't care if I have air conditioning. or what, I mean, Really, I probably will in July. But right now, I, I care about all that kind of stuff. I just want, Lord, what's the most strategic place for your people to be on display? What's the, where can there be greatest exposure for the people of God encountering the presence of God, proclaiming the excellencies of God? Where can a city be set on a hill? Where can a corporate people be living for you, glorifying you? Where could that be? I mean, we don't want to hide the message of the gospel, and we don't want to be a people that are hidden from others. We want to be building relationships throughout our lives. We want to be building relationships with folks all around us that he has designed for us to connect with. Family, neighborhood, work, relatives, whatever. Sports, 
Whatever it is, whatever you do, we want to be connected to as many people as possible. But we also want to be able to then bring those people, not just into our lives, but into the lives of God's people to experience his glory. And we want to be able to do that. I mean, I just would like to do that in the most trafficked place possible. Where could we be that the most people could potentially be exposed to God at work in his people. And that's where I want to be. And that's where God has placed us. It's unbelievable to me. It's just unbelievable. And so really, it's not about, it's not about the bricks and the bricks will be going up. There's already bricks over there. It's not about the bricks going up on that building. It's about the bricks going up and us being built together here. That is a tool to house the church. That's not the church. This is the church. That is a tool that houses the church so that the church can display the glory of God. One way that we can do it, many ways, but one way is as we gather, as we gather together. And so that's what we're doing. We are seeking to finish that project. We are seeking to pay that project off as quickly as we can. We are asking everyone in our church to make a commitment again, to make a sacrificial commitment, because this stuff really matters. The people of God gathered before the Lord really matters, and that's just going to be a base for ministry. That's going to be a base for us to be sent from and a base for us to gather into as well. Last week, Rob mentioned that we set a goal this year for our pledges. We'll talk about this next week, more detail, but of $400,000. Last year, our pledges were about two eighty. I'm not good in math, but like 400 is a whole lot more than 280. And uh, we're not a whole lot, we don't have a whole lot more people or anything like that than we did last year. So it's a really, a, it's a big step of faith. And for us to do that, it would mean uh, really that everyone who participated last year, we'd ask you to participate the same. So it, it would mean that all of us who participated last year to participate again. And some of us who participate again to up what we did last year. And then a number of us who didn't participate at all to jump in. If everybody was able to do what we did last year, and a a significant part of that group was able to do more than we did last year, and then a group of people who have not participated jumped in, we could hit that. We could do that. Um, And it just gets us further down the line in our our process of uh, building that location. God's done something. He's given us an opportunity. He's given us an opportunity to invest in it. So let's pray and ask how we might be able to participate. Because what we're doing is not just building a cool building uh, in a nice location. What we're doing is constructing a tool. A tool for ministry to people in Jesus. A tool for us to gather. That's all it is. It's a tool for us to gather and proclaim the excellencies of God to, to be his people and to gather and, and to invite as many people as we can to come and see, come and see, come and see. Go and tell, come and see. Go and tell as you come to him. Uh, this, this passage tonight. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.